So uh, one of the things I really hate is when people come up to me and um, ask me, what do you do? You know, because that's when I have to say, well, I'm a pastor. And then there's this awkward silence and, and oh, oh, and off we go to another topic. I don't fit in whenever I have to be uh, exposed myself that way. And I suspect maybe that's one reason why uh, pastors came up with this this idea that you're not your identity. You're not your work. Your identity is not what you do. That's become very cliche. You know, you're more than what you what you do for a living. And and there's certainly a degree of truth to that, I guess, that that, um, that in a sense, certainly our vocation, our work, uh, things we do um, are an expression of something we are in a deeper sense. But what is that? And may it surprise us then that, that when we begin to talk about uh, the Eighth Commandment, thou shalt not steal, that the Scripture will rate, relate this to the very fundamental of who we are that's getting abused when you steal from someone. Now, to try to get to this point, you remember that, that Paul is writing to Timothy. He wants to send him as an emissary to Ephesus and and Ephesus is evidently having a hard time understanding the law of God. It's not unlike today. People are having a very hard time. There's confusion about how to interpret the Old Testament in relationship to the New. There's confusion as if the law and the gospel are antithetical to each other versus having a way of understanding that the gospel is, in fact, a fulfillment of the law. And this led into Ephesus, evidently, to a, to a bit of hedonism, a kind of licentiousness. You know, there's... There's really four ways, though, to, to deal with the law. If you were in your head, we did this in Sunday school today, but, but if you in your head were to put high law, low law, high grace, low grace, that would give you four quadrants, right? And they pretty much summarize the, the four ways that people typically relate to the law of God. One would be low law, low grace. That's the Pharisee. The Pharisee was the guy that reduced the law to the most bare, minimal, outward thing. Like, thou shalt not kill means literally you take a gun and you kill somebody. And that's all it was. And Christ would come back and say, oh, have you reduced the law? Because I say to you, even when you hate your brother, you have killed. But the Pharisees would do that, and the way they would do that is they'd make themselves feel a little more righteous because if they would selectively reduce the law to where things that they felt comfortable keeping. And then they would point their finger to all the people in the world who failed that law, and it made them feel a little bit better about themselves. That's the Pharisee. Low law, low grace. The moralist is high law, low grace. The moralist has a great view of the law, very robust, and they have no grace, and so they're flagellating themselves all the time trying to make atonement for it, beating themselves up, you know, always apologizing, always trying to prove themselves, you know, dutiful people though they may be. I have sometimes the greatest pity for the moralists. They work in themselves to the bone, you know, trying to, to, to somehow achieve the law that is, quite frankly, robust. Um, and, of course, that's high law, low grace. Paul talks about the law, how, how one of its uses is going to be to humble us to the place where we are exasperated by it. So it's such, it's such a moral clarity of, of a beautiful way of life that, that we all fall short. And if you didn't have grace with it, it would, it would beat you up. That's the moralist. Then you've got the hedonist. The hedonist is the guy that, that has low uh, law, high grace, but a false kind of grace, a licentious type of grace, a, 
uh, antinomian or no law grace. And the hedonist, of course, is just, you know, if it works for you, that's good. You know, anything that works for you is all right. It really comes down to no absolute law, no no perfection of beauty that comes from heaven to, to inform us, but rather it's a law unto ourselves. And that's the hedonist. Now, all three of those are false ways of dealing with the law. The true way is, of course, the law and gospel, or a gospel-informed way of dealing with the law. That's going to be high law and high grace. High law, high grace, we don't need to compromise uh, the law. We don't need to reduce it because we know that the law is fulfilled for us in Jesus Christ. He became the righteous perfection of the law, and that gave him the right to come to this moment that we'll end with today where he gave his life for an atonement for our sins. You see, he both he keeps what the moralist can't keep, which is to atone for sins. He keeps what the Pharisee keep, can't keep by his moral righteousness. And out of that comes forth a flourishing, a kind of Christian hedonism, if you will, where there is a genuine reconciliation with, with the affections and the love of life. And so that's the nature of what was going on in Ephesians. There was a lot of confusion. And so Paul is sending Timothy as his emissary to try to straighten this whole thing out, and particularly the moral licentiousness that was going on. He talks about it in Ephesians, how it's going to be this, you know, that the church needs to be a, have moral clarity because they were surrounded by these, the gods of this world that were just literally, they're, they're resident aliens. They're little aliens in the middle of, but residencies in Ephesians. And all the gods who have perverted the law and the decadence was around them. And so he's deeply concerned, evidently. And to do that now, he's walking through the, ten, the, the last half of the Ten Commandments. So if you're new, that's where we are. And we're now in the fourth one, which is the Eighth Commandment. And the Eighth Commandment is, Thou shalt not steal. But true to Pauline form here in this book, he's, he's saying it in the most provocative way he can, particularly to provoke Timothy, because Timothy knew his theology. Timothy had helped Paul even write the book of Ephesians. And so he doesn't explain much in Timothy. He'll just put a word out there, and clearly Timothy would have known how to fill in the theology. So in this particular case, he speaks of, he just says that one word. You saw it there. But it's basically the word for human slave. Er, let me see the word I got here. It's word, And there it's enslaver or man-stealer. That's what I'm saying. It's enslaver, is the ESV version you heard, or man-stealing is literally what the word is. It's two parts in the Greek. And all of a sudden, you and I are brought into this incredible theological journey as to what is the meaning of thou shalt not steal. Clearly, what it meant, this word, was at the very least, on the outward sense, it certainly meant that there, it was a, that that God was opposed to coerced servanthood, or what we call, in the modern day sense, of slavery. I mean, listen to this as this comes through in the Old Testament. One who sells a person, I'm talking about, someone who sells a person as a slave that treats someone as chat, chattel or property. And we know, of course, that Paul is speaking to that as a form, though, of stealing. But why? But first, just the law itself. Exodus 21. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Okay, I don't think there's any ambiguity. God is opposed to slavery. 
Deuteronomy 24, if a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then the thief shall die. Notice he calls him a thief. It's a sin against the Eighth Commandment. This is all under the chapter of thou shalt not steal, by the way. In Exodus, as it goes through to explain the different ways that you can violate it. An example of stealing, of course, in the Old Testament, if you heard the story of Joseph, where his brothers, in fact, stole him and sold him to Egypt. And it's referred to as a violation of the Eighth Commandment throughout Scripture. And so what we have is clearly a commandment that speaks against uh, man-stealing, in the literal use of that word, or human-stealing. But here's where you have to ask the question, why? Why would that fit that category? What is happening to humanity that it's so essential that it fits this idea of man-stealing? And the answer is back in Genesis, and that a man is his work. A woman is her work. Now, right now, you're nervous, because you've heard all us pastors tell you that that's not true. And it's not totally true, okay? And you're going to see what I mean by that in a minute. But I'm just trying to get your, your attention a little bit. If you go back to Genesis, and this idea of the imago Dei, Latin for the image of God, at the very core of who we are, We are made in the image of God. It's that dignity that comes, that we have as human beings, that that we rise above all the other creatures and all other things, that that we are just little lower than God, is the way one uh, author would put it. That we are made in his image. But what does that mean? Well, notice God says in chapter 126, Genesis, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, let us, and let them have dominion over the fish. And the, he goes through the birds and every sphere of life and creation. Now, this is where we don't do isogesis. We don't pick out the image of God and start imposing modernist questions on it, like ontological questions, like, well, are we rationality? Do we have a spirit? Do we have this? No, let the scripture tell you what he means. In the image of God, we are imaging God's work of having a, of being royal priestly representatives of God on earth. That we are given a dominion, a a, a sphere, a kingdom order. And the idea of this image of God is that, that we are given this incredible mandate to subdue the earth, to work it in a manner to bring it into a kingdom order. It's to bring kingdom order, God's kingdom order into the earth. This is particularly fleshed out as you get going here. This idea of dominion, which equals bringing kingdom order to the world, which is our work. He goes on to explain that that's, that's, required, that's of both male and female, just to know, verse 27. So God created him in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Both male and female are now these royal priestly vicegenerates, these representatives of the ultimate king of king and priest on earth. And to image that work of creating and recreating, if you will, a world into his order. And here's where it gets fleshed out in verse 28 of chapter 1. And so, and here's the explanation of what it means. And so God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then he goes on to say, excuse me, I just hit it with my thumb. Fill the earth. I did this last week. I kept hitting it with my thumb. and I I better stop hitting it with my thumb. Um, Fill and subdue it and have dominion over it, the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living creature that moves on the face of the earth. 
Now, this is crucial. Did you hear how the dominion now is worked out? It's defined as being fruitful and multiply. That is to expand the kingdom of God to the whole earth that's now located in Eden. I'd call that evangelism, if you will. But to be fruitful and to subdue it and have dominion over it. See, this is this idea of fruit. And why that's so important? Because you're going to see that whenever there is a discussion of the Eighth Commandment, it's going to relate back to this incredible, dignifying empowerment that God has given to humanity. This, this is an, an incredibly empowered person in the image of God. Empowered, their choices make a difference. Their actions make a difference. And it's such that when they are empowered, when they make those decisions and they exercise their hands and their minds and all that they do to bring this earth in subjection to God and his kingdom, that there's fruit that should come from this, that the world will now flourish as a witness to the glorious law of God, the glorious mind of God. And as this earth flourishes, Anything then that diminishes that empowering dominion of humanity, the the royal priestly image of God in humanity, and particularly that would take away or in any way, uh, uh, you know, take, take away the fruit, in other words, is a direct act against the very identity of humanity in the image of God. This is so crucial. Here's an example of it, just the way it works out. For instance, in the Psalms, in 104.13 of the Psalms, this psalmist is talking to God. Listen how he uses fruit. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. And then as if you just replace man with God, God with man, it says this, Psalms 128, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. There's this constant association with human vocation, reaping what you sow as a a witness to that creation order that you're putting into the world, and therefore your work. Exodus 23. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your... Labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of gathering at the end of the year when you're gathered from the field the fruit of your labor. This was a great celebration. Once a year where they would celebrate the fruit of their labor. That's a, that was like a, a holy day to Israel. Deuteronomy 28, And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity and the fruit of your womb and in the fruit of your livestock and in the fruit of your ground where in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. There's this beautiful image of humanity bringing kingdom order to the world, making it flourish with life and bounty. And to do anything to diminish that vocational empowerment, such as to take away the bounty and the flourishing, as to frustrate it, is a sin against the Imago Dei, you see. Who we are in the image of God, is to work the land, or the sky, or the sea, whatever we work. Now, that's the backdrop for all of this, because now you're going to see all kinds of, of proverbs relating to the at this eighth commandment. But remember, whenever there's a commandment in Scripture in the negative, the positive is assumed. 
just like whenever there's a commandment that's outward in its behavioral form, the inward attitudes and values that lead to it are also a sin. So if you were to say, thou shalt not steal, like Paul quotes in the book of Ephesus, remember this is a book about those who, Timothy's going to go to Ephesus. When Paul talks to Ephesus, he tells them he's doing the same thing there, going through these five commandments. And he says this, he says, now, let the, 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 the thief no longer steal, but then very effortlessly, because this is what the Bible did in Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy and the Proverbs, very effortlessly, and he goes, so therefore let everyone work with his or her own hands. That means his own power. Doesn't mean have to be hands. You'd be the life of the mind, whatever it is. But it should be your own energy. Let everyone work with his own hands so that they might give to those in need. You see how that's, don't steal, don't take away from people the fruit of the land. But quite the contrary, for those who, for whatever reason, in this fallen world, have been led to some calamity or some crisis, we should work so as to compensate for that which others have not been able to receive in terms of the great harvest of of the land, of the kingdom of God. You understand how this is going? And so there's this dignity in work as related to the dignity of humanity in God's image. And therefore, there is a degree of truth when one would say, I am my work. It is what I'm called to be and to do. is the very vocational calling of my life, which is to be a royal, holy priesthood, bringing order to the world. Now, with that in mind, what do you think Paul is saying when he says, human stealer. It's a lot more than taking some money, though it's that. It's a lot more than this thou shalt not steal. It's, it's, it's taking the, it's robbing the dignity from humanity and anything that does that. Now you're waiting from Scripture, right? Okay, you're, this seems a little far-fetched, Pastor. Well, I don't think so. So let's just walk through it. Where's Paul in this context? Well, he's living in a context in Rome where at least 85 to 90% of the population would be described as slaves. Now, it's important that you understand that, that, that these slaves were not all uh, chattel or property slaves, though some were. Many of these slaves would have come from, say, a victory in war or in a battle. Many of these would be children. Back in those days, the that there would be uh, children would often be left in fields to die. One of the things that Christians were doing in the early church was, was mobilizing efforts to go out and get those children and bring them kind of an adoption service today, uh, bringing them into the families of God. That was one of the ways the church wanted to work against slavery because what was happening, like what is happening, in, sadly, in, in around the world today, is there was child labor that was enslaved. It was a, it was pro- children are now being purchased and sold for, for, for work. And, of course, that's not new. That's not com- and unique just to the first century, sad, sad, sadly enough. Clearly, there were prostitutes that were slaves. There were gladiators that were slaves. There were also, though, servants that weren't slaves that would be called servants or slaves. The slave is a very common use. Even, even Christians are called, right, slaves of God, of Christ. And there's a sense in which there were those, there were some who you would call white-collar slaves, who wanted to be slaves, who had indentured themselves to this work. 
and, and, and they were getting capital for it at the end. But they were bound. You could say today, in that sense, that when you sign a contract with an employer, you just became their slave. They own your time. And they do. They own it. Never forget when uh, Stunts, uh, what's his first name? Member of our church. <laughs> oh, gosh. Can't believe it. Very good friend. Bill Stunts. I'm actually godparents of his kids. Um, he was here. He was a, I know, pretty sad. But he was, he was a law professor here at Yale for a while in our church, and, and we were doing things over the law school quite a bit when he was here. And, and I remember one of the things that he did was he was talking about that second year of law. Are you law students here? Well, that second year you go into your intern and you, pretty much, you kind of sell your soul after that, and that's probably where you're going to end up working. But he was trying to help these guys push back. He said, guys, it's not what you think. You need to really push back here. Before you sign that contract, just ask yourself, you know, what kind of life do you want to live? And now I just remember that context, but I remember him saying, because you are the slave in, in, in American contract law, you are the slave of your employer. There's a truth to that. Now, it's not, but it's not something that's illegal, nor was it in Rome. But you would have used that word to say the same thing. You're a slave. It could be a servant. It could be all sorts of things. So just keep in mind that there's a real complicated diversity of what is called slavery in the first century. But but by and large, what distinguishes them was they lacked property. They lacked capital, just like today. They were at the, at the bequest. They were beholden to those who had capital. Some legal, some illegal, but that's what the difference is. And so this is why the Eighth Commandment is so huge. Because in order to be empowered, you must have capital. You must own something. Something that, the land that you can work. And the land that you work, that therefore you bring the benefits out of it. And if you do own land, and you have servants, or quote, slaves, there are all sorts of laws that speak, that, that go against those who own land from an unjust distribution of the wealth. Sounding familiar? You heard the Amos passage. They emerged in, Jew, in, in, in Israel, and it was certainly true in, in Rome, that, that there became a leisure class. Now, what I mean is not, don't in your mind associate leisure class today with, say, Wall Street. No. We're talking about a, a class of people who did not have to work by virtue of their capital unequally and unjustly distributed in terms of its wealth. It's those who were, as, as Amos will talk about later, uh, if you kept reading, that they, they live in ivory beds. They do this. They do all these things, this extravagant life where, where they actually don't work anymore. It's their capital that does all the work in a manner that they can put in bondage those people who have no capital. And they were very, he was very opposed to that. So much so that, that in the time of the Old Testament, maybe you've heard of the Jubilee Laws. Anybody heard of those? Jubilee laws? Well, the core purpose of those laws was was to protect those who, for whatever reason, lost their land or capital. So every generation, every 40 years, land would return to the family if it had gotten lost in in the laws of Jubilee. Every plot of land and every, every... Every, there was always this reconciliation process that was going on through Israel because it was so essential to the Imago Dei, so essential to what humanity is, that humanity had the opportunity 
to work with his or her own hands, quote-unquote, I use that figuratively, and to therefore experience the fruits of their labor. A labor is worthy of its wage. Ever heard that? That is one of the most commonly repeated passages in Scripture, both Old and New Testament. Don't muzzle the ox. Don't muzzle the ox, which means if they have gone and worked, that was another phrase that would go around. If, If your ox has been working out in the field, it is a sin, quote unquote, as a, to muzzle the ox. Why? That they're not going to partake of eating the grain that they have helped to, to sow. Don't muzzle the ox. And that's a phrase that's used throughout the New Testament as well as the Old to describe those who don't justly distribute the wages, if you will, the fruit, in order for this person to participate in their commission of God in the Imago Dei. And so slavery clearly is a sin. But there are many forms of slavery, as I've said. There's the, there's the chattel slavery, where what Paul uses his word to describe, which is man-stealers. He's talking about that kind of slavery. But it gets much more complicated. But before I go there, let me just say, somewhere there was this... Uh, it's amazing how many people think that the Bible uh, never condemns slavery. And you can kind of appreciate why, because in, of course, the American experience, we had slavery here, Chattel slavery, and it was affirmed and practiced by ministers of the gospel and and uh, elders and people living in the church, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I, I have a quote that just tries to get at the horror of this, one of the most embarrassing quotes you could possibly read. Um, this is by uh, this is in the narrative of the life of Frederick Douglass, an American slave, written in 1845. But, but I'm setting you up because I'm going to respond to this. He is he is Frederick Douglass, a slave, wrote this. So I'll just read it. I hate the corrupt, slaveholding, woman whipping, cradle plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Notice Christianity. I look upon it as the climax of all misnomers, the boldest of all frauds, and the grossest of all libels. I am filled with unutterable loathing when I contemplate the religious pomp and show, together with the horrible inconsistencies which everywhere surround me. We have men-stealers for ministers. Here's that word he's using, Timothy. We have men-stealers for ministers, women-whippers for missionaries, and cradle-plunderers for church members. The man who wields the blood cloth cowskin during the week fills the pulpit on Sunday and claims to be a minister of the meek and lowly Jesus. The slave auctioner's bell and the church-going bell chime in with each other and the bitter cries of the heartbroken slave are drowned in the religious shouts of his pious maker. Revivals of religion and revivals in the trade trade and the slave trade go hand in hand together. The slave prison and the church stand near each other. The clanking of, of, of fetters and the rattling of chains in the prison and the pious psalms and the solemn prayer in the church may be heard at the same time. The dealers in the bodies of men erect their stand in the presence of the pulpit and then mutually help each other. The dealer gives his blood-stained gold to support the pulpit, and the pulpit in return covers infernal business with the garb of Christianity. I could go on. That is a incredible piece of, of writing and literature that describes the, the just, just unimaginable hypocrisy. But it begs the question, how, how could that be? I mean, some of these very people are good people. 
I mean, let's don't be too judgmental and pharisaical here. It was rampant. Then it was rampant in Paul's day. How did, how did this happen? Well, I honestly think it's the problem in Ephesus. There was not a correct understanding of how to read the law of God. I'm saying this for those of you who may be there going, I hate the law. I hate laws. Well, it's that very impulse that led to a licentious hypocrisy that Frederick Douglass is talking about. So let me explain what I mean. Does the scripture, uh, uh, you know, deny even chattel slavery, but even more so others? It's interesting, there's this letter to Onesimus. I'm sorry, Onesimus. And it's in in the book of Philemon, about Onesimus, who was a, 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 a slave. And what's interesting is there's no evidence that Onesimus was a runaway slave necessarily, but he could have been. Perhaps sent by Philemon, though, to minister to Paul as a servant to Paul. Whatever it is, what happens in this book is profound, because Paul writes a letter to to Philemon, and he says, listen, I want you, I'm going to send Omnisimus back to you, the slave. And he tells him that he wants him to, 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 uh, to restore him, not as a slave, but as a brother. To receive him back, not as a slave, but as a brother. Now, why would he do that? Because he understood the law of God. Paul did. Deuteronomy 25, 15. Listen to this. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that you shall chose within one of your homes. Whoever suits him, you shall not wrong him. For those who would say that, that, that the New Testament doesn't speak against slavery or actually did not even give the right of Christians to, to hide slavery, or runaway slaves, didn't read the Old Testament. And why Paul is quoting it when he says, man-stealer. Uh, because when he quoted that, what happened in the mind of Timothy and anyone who understands the whole of Scripture is a whole code of laws came piling into their brain related to the Eighth Commandment. And this would have been one of it that I just read in Deuteronomy. So Paul exhorts Philemon not to receive a nemesis as a slave whose status in Roman society is meant in alienation and dishonor. Rather, he was to welcome Onesimus as a beloved brother that you might have him back for good, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, he is very dear to me. And on it goes. The critics will say Jesus never said anything about the wrongness of slavery. It's true, the New Testaments never politicized it. They never spoke to Rome in the scriptures that we're aware of. And when they tried to get Christ to, uh, he would say, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and the things of God. And some have said that in our politicized culture, that therefore, they were complicit. Quite the contrary. You see, when you stop and think about it, what if you were to call for or, uh, th- there's a difference between decrying something, speaking against something, and then determining the right policy by which that something gets corrected. For Paul and the church, their policy was to correct and erect a counter city. Right in the middle of Rome, they started building another kind of city, the city of God, the church. And if you were to go to that city and look at its laws, you would see that slavery was banished, all forms and fashions, as we'll see in a minute, you'll see that they constructed a very carefully uh, choreographed mercy ministry so that those 
who within a, within a uh, patriarchal and agrarian economy would have no way to fulfill their Imago Day work, they had a whole system of mercy wherein they could come. But one of the keys to that system was they could not be idle. They had to work. You go back and read it. It's going to be later in Timothy. that the, the widow, that is the person who has no opportunity to capital and to work, this person must be taken into the church, become part of the household of God, be given work to do, and would enjoy the fruits of that work. And they had a huge mercy ministry for that. Isn't that incredible? But that's how they spoke against, they would not allow it in their memory. In fact, it's very clear that Paul says, a slave, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free in the church of Christ. We know in Romans 16, at least two of the list of officers in the church there are slaves. And they were officers. Christ comes and says, I've come to set the oppressed, the imprisoned, and the enslaved free. But see, the key is don't confuse it. It's one thing, um, the method of the, of, of, the, of the Gospels is to speak against it. And, and if it offends Herod, then it offends Herod, as it did when they spoke against his adultery. But their, their goal was to construct a new society to do it. And there are many, many other laws like that that clearly condemn slavery. But right now, I'm about to make you self-righteous. Right now, if I stopped right here, we would all go, boy, yeah. And we've become the Pharisee activist who's pointing the finger at all the world and all the horrible things they do. And even back to the Christian who back in the early years were having slaves. We're, oh, we're getting very self-righteous feeling, aren't we? I am. Well, remember what we said about this Eighth Commandment. It goes deep. Let's talk about other forms of slavery. Sure, chattel slavery is one form. We've spoken of that issue. Another form of slavery is anything that prevents a person from having access of becoming self-sufficient. Self-sufficiency, believe it or not, was a major goal. Martin Luther King. So now we've gone from the enslavement. Let's go. Now we have emancipation in America, right? Martin Luther King Jr. speaks of Reconstruction, Jim Crow, and the laws that informed uh, the Reconstruction. And at the heart of Reconstruction, if you've studied it, is the inability to have capital or land. You see, in the Bible, if you steal something from someone, you have to return it. You don't just say, all right, we'll stop stealing from you. I mean, this is where a guy named John Perkins, a guy that I've, I've read and worked with a little bit when I was in Atlanta, uh, he, he tells a story that, you know, that if we had a basketball game, I mean, would it be just if for the first half of the basketball game, the red team uh, got five points to the blue team's every one point for a goal scored? You'd say, that's unjust. So halftime, you know, the, 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 the refs go back, they look at the score. Oh, man, did you see that? That guy was putting five times as many points on the board every time they scored than these guys. So here's what they're going to do, right? They're going to come back out and say, okay, guys, time out. We've been, we've been stealing points from the blue team here, but, but we're just going to start playing fair now. So everybody, fair game right now. Let's play fair. How would you feel about that if you were the red team? Kind of sucks, doesn't it? No, that's not going to work. The idea, now here's a people. Think about it. The very prophet that built the nation on their very backs, their hard work, and yet they had not experienced the fruit of it, not hardly any of it. 
And they were emancipated. But Martin Luther King talks about this a lot. He says it might have been just as bad, if not worse, what happened after emancipation. Because we disempowered a people. What should have happened is land. The very land that these people have been working should have been but been uh, equitably distributed among the, the slave community. And they knew how to work it. They, would have pr- they knew how to bring fruit from it. These were an empowered people, hard workers. And this agricultural, since I know there are other kind of slaves as well. But they'll just give this example. So here, listen to the scriptures. Does the scripture speak to that? You better believe it does. Listen to this, First Thessalonians 4. Work with your own hands so that you may be dependent on no one. That's an eighth commandment uh, commandment in the positive. Whatever we do, if we understand the eighth commandment, it's we should do nothing that would in any way prohibit anyone from being able to work with their own hand and to be self-sufficient and prosper with that work. Whoever works his hands will have plenty of bread, it says, but who follows a worthless pursuit will have plenty of poverty. That equation is supposed to work in God's kingdom. And I could go on and on and on. The point is that whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now, there's a kind of enslavement where we rob people of their dignity and their power when there is a... I don't know, a, a class of people maybe. It could be systemic or an individual person. But whoever and however it happens, when there's an unjust distribution of capital or fruit, we would call it. They would get one fruit for pulling it out of the ground. This person up here, just because he has capital, is going to get 100 fruits. And all through the Bible, that is absolutely assumed. Now, it's not that it's going to be equally distributed necessarily. That's another question. But it's, it's, it's to be distributed in a manner that's, that's fitting the work that they do and the, and the, in the sense of their being able to, to flourish by that work. And somehow it just bothers me, if it doesn't bother you when I'm reading this, that there are people who are being brought over from other countries literally to, to pull lettuce out of the ground to back the capitalist. And who don't and can't make a living by it. I can, I can decry that from the word of God. It's clearly what Amos decries. Clearly. And so let's, let's take, there's more here than you think, is my point. Without access to ownership, in a way fundamental to being human. Of having dominion over land somewhere. Water somewhere. Sky somewhere. Somehow. It's just fundamental. says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man, for that brother, if a man has won to redeem it, then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the year since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain at the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. I don't know what that looks like in modern day, but I know what it looks like in the church. In the church of Jesus Christ, we're going to we're going to approach poverty within the church as a new society and we're going to ex- exercise these sort of things. We're going to find ways for those who have lost 
for whatever reason of the past, have lost their ability to be empowered, we're going to form micro-enterprises and help them form these micro-enterprises. But that's because the Bible tells us to. The whole law of Jubilee that Paul here says, look, we're not... These are not laws. There will be manifest in different ways, but don't have this idea that the moral law is no longer applicable to us today. You need to go back and read Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Exodus and some of these places. You may, it may blow your mind because that's what Paul's doing there. Man stealers, which makes you go back to that whole corpus of laws to see all the ways that you can steal And so, therefore, you shall not withhold the wages of the poor and the needy. It goes on to talk about that. The Scripture says, and this is in Timothy, right, a couple of passages after the one we read today, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Woe to him who builds his house by unrighteous wages and his upper rooms by injustice, who makes his neighbor serve him for practically nothing and does not give him his wages. Jeremiah 22, 13. This is pushing against a lot of stuff, and we're part of that. It's getting closer to home, but it gets worse. You want to get really exasperated? Remember, it's not just the outward stuff, but it's also the inward stuff. Idleness is a sin against the Eighth Commandment. You steal when we don't pay our own way. We steal when we intentionally rely on other people's paying our way, which then takes the fruit from other people that need it. You see, it's an, I don't, we're not talking about crisis here. We're not talking about, you know, the hurricane that blows up your house. That's not what we're talking about. Or sickness that takes you away from work. There's mercy for that in the church. But it wasn't the plan that anyone would not be self-sufficient. It's a part of the fall. It's part of the toil that we then meet with mercy. And so there's all kinds of scriptures about this whole idea that work is a moral duty. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, it says. And then one, you will, of course, take a Sabbath day rest. Now we command you, Second Thessalonians, to t- keep away from believers who are living in idleness. For you, pr- show yourselves, you yourselves know how you ought to in- imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you, and we did not eat anyone's bread without paying for it. That's Paul. That's incredible. Are you getting the sense? Let me just kind of close this here. We're coming to the end. But but the whole series here has been an attempt to help us love the law because we see the way the law of God would bring such moral clarity to a world surrounded by the, quote, Canaanite gods in the way we speak to one another, in the way we live with our finances with one another. And so most everything I've said today, for those of you who know our tradition in the Presbyterian Church, we have what's called a Westminster Confession of Faith. And in that, there's this larger catechism. I would encourage you to go and look that up. Westminster Larger Catechism. But here, everything I've said is sitting in that catechism as, the, as what our church believes. Did you know that? Just so you know it. What are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? The duties required of the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness and justice in doing contracts and commerce with one another. Think about that. It's, I, I was in Atlanta working for a while. You might not know this. And I was actually selling this product there. And um, I won't go into it. But I'll never forget coming home and feeling convicted of sin. 
because I sold something to someone in a contract. I didn't lie. I didn't say anything wrong or deceitful, per se. But I just didn't say everything. You know what I mean? And the people I talked to in the office said, that's not your job to tell them why they shouldn't buy it. I mean, this is the way this thing works in our economy. You sell it, they do due diligence, and we come up with contracts. And I went home and said, that's not the Bible. It's just not the Bible. I had to go back to that guy and turn it in. I said, I, want, I think you should turn this in. I don't know if you've noticed, but this is another part of that contract that you didn't notice there. And I mean, I was just sinful, right? And you can see that. But that's what's talked about here. That is to say that, that, that there should be this kind of rendering to everyone his due is another one. Rendering to everyone his due. Ought a man and a woman be able to make a decent living by their work? So why are we going to another country because we can't pay our own people enough money? That would be a policy a Christian would affirm. But in the Church of Jesus Christ, and again, how you get to that policy, I don't know. I'm not a, we're not going to go there. There's many ways you could get to that. There's different so, economic systems that the church can't speak to by good and necessary inference. That's where I'm going to go short. I'm not going to go there. I can see very, there are various methods of getting you there, and we can debate that out. But I know that's where we should go. I, would, I said it in the first service, and I'll say it again. Of all the sins that I think this generation is going to be most notable for, it is the unjust distribution of the harvest. I really do. Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof. Hadn't we talked about that? Giving and lending freely. Now, what's going on there? The assumption in the Bible is that a, is a debt is a, a form of enslavement. You lose your liberty when you're in debt. Now, it's not to say that all debt is wrong. You could go into what Christians have said. I could say it, that, you know, as long as you have capital, as long as you have some kind of a, uh, what do you call it, you're the, that backs it up, collateral, whatever it is. But, but debt is a scary thing, and I think we need to remember that in the Bible. Because it's what, because why? It diminishes that Imago Dei empowerment of subduing and having dominion over the earth. Someone who you owe has dominion over your life and your decisions. Can I have a baby? Well, I have too much debt. Can I do this? I have too much debt. See what's going to happen? So be careful of that. But it goes on. Moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods. The idea here is that those who begin with the assumption that I worked hard for it, I deserve it, they're saying that's just bull. (laughs) Deserve what and how much? At what point are you now living on the backs of those in the chain of economic demand who have not enough to live on. In Corinthians it says how uh, God gives enough for all. Those who have too much don't have enough or have enough. Those who have too little will have enough because there's this distribution of God's fruits to the world. And then it goes into things like covetousness and And here's where I want to go with this. I'm going to stop here because I'm getting exasperated if you're not. (laughs) Who here, raise your hand, can say, I have not sinned against the Eighth Commandment? Who here can say that I've been perfectly fair and just in all of my dealings with people? Who here can say that I've, I've not robbed even one hour from my employer by being idle? Who here can say, you know, and you could go on and on and on. I'm now exasperated. So I want to bring us to this table. Remember, the law, the moral clarity, brings us to moral humility. 
I'm not the Pharisee. I'm now the moralist. And I'm really feeling bad. So next step of the, of the law is moral what? Reconciliation. Christ becomes the law fulfilled. That righteousness that has no need of, of, of the curse or of the law, no need of being atoned for, now is suitable to atone for you. You see, it's like he has the righteousness necessary so that when he suffers the atoning sacrifice, the restitution that comes from that can go to you because he's already restored. It's a beautiful equation, an economic equation at that. So that the word that Paul uses is an economic term where he says, therefore, you know, this righteousness is, uh, what's the word? Um, credited to you is the word, but there's another word for it. It's credited to you. So when you come to the table, I want you to be encouraged. One, you can have moral clarity. Yes, you can be a light in the midst of darkness out there. But don't do it the pharisaical way. Don't do it the moralist way. And certainly don't do it the hedonist way. I encourage you to do it the gospel way. To bring yourself to this table. To confess your sins as we have. That I have fallen short of the beauty of your law. That law which exposes the beauty of God. And you put your faith in Christ to atone for that sin. And now you're restored to the law. Because you're no longer afraid of it because it's not condemning you. It's now guiding you and leading you to live a different life. And you will flourish under the law. Amen.